This morning I'm going to be reviewing the instructions that we've given so far, which in general have been beginning by using a specific anchor to steady and stabilize the awareness. So we keep gently returning the awareness to that one object, whether it's the body sitting, the breath, or sounds, for the purpose of developing some steadiness of attention. As the mindfulness becomes more steady, it stays connected to that anchor for longer. It doesn't get lost as often, and as a feeling of the attention be getting more gathered rather than scattered or distracted. So then, when our mindfulness has some steadiness to it, we can open up the lens of our awareness to include more and more aspects of our experience. So rather than bringing the attention back to a single object and trying to keep it there, we allow the awareness to just connect with whatever is predominant in our experience. It could be the breath or the body sitting or sounds, but it might also include sensations anywhere else in the body. And very likely it will also include mental activity, all those various kinds of thinking and emotions, and moods, and mind states. And just to acknowledge that mental activity is often harder to stay present with without getting lost in the content of it. So if you do notice that this has happened for some period of time, that's the time to re-establish awareness of the anchor. Stabilize the mindfulness there, and when the mindfulness is steady again, let it open up and connect with whatever experience is predominant. So remembering that even though we've laid out the instructions in a particular sequence, that doesn't imply a hierarchy. It's not that the breath is more important or physical sensations are less important or that mindfulness of the mind is somehow the advanced practice. All of those different experiences are happening anyway. We're just trying to introduce these different arenas in a way that helps to build and stabilize the attention. So having said that, it is true that paying attention to the mind is often the hardest, partly because thoughts and emotions happen so fast, and partly because we tend to take them so personally, to cling to them, to identify with them, to take them to be me, mine, who I am. But in the Buddha's teachings, the mind is just another sense door. So just as the eye sees, the ears hear, the mind thinks. And generally speaking, we can't stop mental activity through sheer force of will. And trying to do that only strengthens aversion. So instead, we're trying to cultivate a relationship of kind curiosity to whatever is going on in the heart and the mind. Because if thinking happens, it's not your fault. It arises due to conditions, passes due to conditions. So in the instructions this morning, I'll touch into these different aspects of experience, just as a reminder of how we might practice with each one. So just take a moment to settle a little more fully into your meditation posture. Connecting with the support of the ground 
the earth beneath you. Noticing the feet in contact with the floor. The sitting bones in contact with the cushion or the bench or the chair. Or if you're lying down, noticing the weight of the body in contact with the floor. And invite the body to find a position that naturally expresses alertness and ease. Connecting with that felt sense of the body in whatever position it's in. Simply knowing that there is the body Right now, the body is like this. Being aware of however the body is arranged. And staying present with that experience of the whole body now. Inviting the stillness of the body to support the stilling of the mind. Continuing to stay present to the whole body or if the breath is your preferred anchor, letting the awareness connect with the experience of breathing. Just that very simple knowing that you're breathing in, knowing that you're breathing out. And each time the attention moves away from the breath, gently bringing it back. Reconnecting with the rhythm of in and out, or rising and falling. Fighting the simple rhythm of the breath to steady the awareness. Continuing to stay present to the body or the breath, or if sounds are your preferred anchor, letting the awareness open and connect with the experience of hearing. Opening up mindfulness to include sounds by simply settling back and receiving 
the experience of hearing. 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 Allowing that simple knowing of sounds to steady and stabilize the awareness. Now that we've been staying steady with just one anchor for a while, the mindfulness is a little more stable than when we started. So we can begin to open up the field of awareness now to notice different aspects of our experience. Just let the attention connect with whatever naturally calls it to connect with whatever is predominant in your experience right now, in this moment. Perhaps it's some kind of physical sensation somewhere in the body, tingling or pulsing, throbbing, aching, warmth, itching, Don't have to name or note it like that, but simply know whatever the experience is anywhere in the body. Likewise, if some kind of thinking is what's most obvious right now, just staying present for whatever mental activity there might be, thoughts or images, memories, words or sounds in the mind. No need to follow the thoughts or get rid of the thoughts. settling back and when a thought becomes predominant knowing thinking thinking thinking
As you allow these various thoughts to come into awareness, at some point you might notice some of them are very familiar. Same thought patterns coming up over and over again. Perhaps a particular thought feels like it's stuck on auto-repeat. If you do happen to notice a particular thought formation that's looping like that, you might take a moment just to check if there's some kind of emotion underneath it. Bringing the awareness down out of the head and connecting into the heart center, perhaps the belly. See if you can notice some kind of emotion. Might be a pleasant emotion, an unpleasant emotion. Whatever emotion might be present right now, can you simply meet it with kind curiosity? Not feeding it, not repressing it. it helps you to stay steady with the emotion, you might experiment with noting or labeling what kind of emotion it is. Anticipation, anxiety, gratitude, frustration, interest, judgment, Happiness. If it's not clear what the emotion is, you can just note something. Something. Whatever emotions might be coming up right now, just to notice if there's any reactivity to them. Dropping in the question, how am I relating to my experience right now? Or what's the attitude in the mind? At times, you might become aware that there is some kind of reactivity to your experience. And if right now you are aware of some sense of struggle, just take a moment to run through the five hindrances to see if one or more of these hindrances might be coming into play. Is there any trace of wanting, of desire for sense pleasure? Or is it more not wanting? Some type of ill will or aversion, anger or fear? You might notice how's the energy right now? Is it low, sinking into sloth and torpor, dullness? 
inertia? Or is it high, revving up into restlessness and worry? Perhaps there's some form of skeptical doubt, useless questioning, confusion, undermining. Even as you stay present with all these different types of mental activity, noticing how they come and go of their own accord. Like clouds passing through the vastness of the sky. Just as the sky is unaffected by the different weather systems that pass through it, whether it's rain or wind or hail, thunder and lightning, sun. In the same way, the thoughts and the emotions and even the hindrances arise and pass away. Whatever is present in the mind right now, simply knowing it without judgment, Letting the clouds of thoughts and emotions, moods and mind states, even the hindrances just float through awareness like clouds in the sky. And if at any time you get lost or confused, You can gently return the attention to the anchor, the breath, the body, or sounds. And then when the awareness is stable again, opening up to whatever is predominant. Continuing to practice in this way in silence now.
Just a couple of written questions from the written question bowl. The first one was addressed to Guy, but I think it's a general question. It says, Guy Armstrong, I think you encourage labeling and mental noting as a way of working with thoughts. If so, could you speak about skillful and unskillful ways of using these techniques? So the question is specifically in relation to thoughts, but I thought I'll just give a few general uh, guidelines about working with noting because I don't think we've talked about that technique much so far. So the first thing to say is that noting is really intended as a tool to help us stay connected to our experience and to help make that experience clearer. So it can be useful, for example, in activities that we do all the time, over and over, often on autopilot. The noting can help bring a little bit more freshness, a bit more clarity to the experience. For example, if we're going through the lunch line and there's that very common tendency to be racing ahead of ourselves, just naming, noting, reaching, stretching, taking, placing, lifting, and so on with each activity, just that little bit of extra effort can bring more clarity, more awareness to what we're doing. And the idea is that it is a label, a single word note, because we don't want to get into the habit of strengthening the tendency to think about the experience instead of being with the immediacy of it. So whatever word we're using, it should be just a very soft whisper in the mind, in the background, so that the majority of our attention is staying present with the experience itself. And like all the other techniques that we're offering here, it's a training. So at first, this practice might feel a little bit forced or clunky or artificial. But if you persevere with it, it starts to become more fluid and we see how it can help to strengthen and refine the awareness. It can also act as a feedback loop to show us more quickly when we've got off our mindfulness in some way. For example, traditionally in the walking, we use labels like lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And at some point when the mindfulness is weakened, we might realize that we're lifting as we're placing or moving as we're stepping and so on. If it wasn't for the notes, it might take us quite a bit longer to catch the fact that we've got disconnected. So noting can be also very useful in relation to mental activity because it can help depersonalize it. As we've been saying, most of us tend to get much more fascinated by the content of the thoughts and not so much aware of the process of thinking. So just using the simple note or label thinking reminds us, oh, this process is happening and we don't need to get involved in it. It also, neurobiologically, apparently, the part of the mind that comes up with the label is different than the one that's doing the actual thinking. So each moment that we're dropping in a note or a label is a moment that we're not as identified with the thought. And then there's less tendency to take the thoughts, the mental activity, personally. 
then as the mindfulness becomes more refined, we might start to get more precise with the notes or the labels. So we can start with a generic label such as thinking, thinking. Sometimes, though, that doesn't give us quite enough traction, and we might sit there thinking and just naming thinking, 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 but we're not really connected to the experience. So then it might be helpful to refine the note, to investigate a little, just a little, to notice, is this planning or future thinking or fantasizing or anticipation or anxiety thoughts, for example. And again, the key is not to get caught in thinking too much about it. So we're trying to get one word to bring us clarity and not get lost in proliferation about the difference between fantasizing and daydreaming. Was that future thinking or was that planning? What's the difference anyway? If that starts to happen, let it go and just reestablish awareness of the anchor. And then when the mindfulness is strong again, coming back to the thoughts. There's another way that noting has been useful in my own practice in terms of listening to the tone of the note. So sometimes we catch that inner voice that silently speaks the label, speaking with quite an attitude. For example, if planning is happening repeatedly, we might notice the tone of the note change from neutral to increasingly frustrated. And that's useful feedback. Oh, some kind of aversion is building, is becoming predominant. So then we need to take care of the reactivity. Soften, relax, perhaps again come back to that anchor for a while. In my own practice, noting has been most useful in relation to emotions. Because I think generally speaking, our society tends to overvalue the intellect and undervalue emotions. So we don't often have a lot of skill in relating skillfully to our emotions. So in some ways, for me at least, this training of mental noting was a kind of training in emotional literacy. And it can help us to get more clarity about whatever the emotion might be. And it does take practice. For me at least, in the beginning, it felt a bit like throwing darts at a dartboard. And sometimes the label was way off. But we might need to just keep trying different words and then eventually we'll find one that sticks, that metaphorically hits the bullseye and brings us that moment of clarity. So for example, I might be aware of some kind of unpleasant mental state. And in the beginning I just might know, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. Then as I tune into it, I might recognize it seems to be in the terrain of sadness. Sadness. So I might use the note almost as a little question. Sadness. Does it's in the terrain? It's not quite right. So I might try grief, longing. Ah, loneliness. Ah, okay, it's loneliness. And then suddenly, okay, I'm just missing the people who aren't here, and I can meet that with a moment of compassion. So in some ways, mental noting with emotions is kind of like an auditioning process, and we might need to try a few different words before we find the one that fits. So coming back to the original question about noting in relation to thinking, again, 
it's intended to help us stay connected to the experience. So if it's becoming mechanical or automatic or in some ways distancing ourselves from the experience, then it might not be so useful. So we just offer it as another tool in the metaphorical toolbox and you might pick it up, play with it for a while, see, see what the benefits are. Okay, just quickly, one other question. President Abraham Lincoln said most people are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. Most people are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. Is Lincoln's opinion true in relation to the Buddha's teachings and compatible with what the Buddha taught? So, from my perspective, it's it does seem like this quote is in alignment with the Buddha's teachings because one of the things it's pointing to is, I think, you know, people who are not involved with this kind of practice tend to think that happiness lies in getting external conditions to be a certain way. If I could just get this, that, the other to be this way, then I'd be happy. And we're completely dependent on the world out there being a certain way for our happiness. But Lincoln is pointing to people are as happy as they make up their minds to be. So it's about the mind. There's been lots of research studies that show that for people who have some kind of big life event that should make them happy, like winning the lottery, birth of a grandchild, getting married and so on, There's an initial phase of intense happiness, but generally speaking, after some period of time, most people revert back to whatever degree of happiness they had before that. So most people tend to have a default level of happiness or unhappiness, no matter what their circumstances might be. And we probably can all think of examples of people whose life experience from the outside is pretty successful, but they're not happy. And the opposite, we can think of people whose lives from the outside look pretty terrible, but somehow they have an inner sense of ease and happiness. So the second aspect of Lincoln's statement, I think, is just pointing to the truth that we actually have a choice about our happiness or unhappiness, depending on how we live our lives. And this is in alignment with the Buddha's teachings, the famous lines from the Dhammapada, We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So in the Buddha's teachings, we're training to notice all the default habits and patterns of our hearts and minds so that we can release the ones that cause unhappiness and strengthen the ones that lead to happiness, ease, peace and freedom. So that's really what we're doing here. Okay, just a quick couple of announcements. Uh, Just about etiquette in the hall. 
If you come to a sitting here, please arrive on time and stay all the way to the end unless there's some kind of emergency, but stay until the bell rings. So even in those sittings where maybe the monastics might need to leave a few minutes early, for the rest of you, please do stay through until the bell rings. Then again at nine o'clock in the evening, we, we have this practice now of whoever's leading it will ring the bell softly once at 9.20 and you're welcome to slide out at that point. If you're a practice leader, firstly, thank you so much for supporting the retreat container in that way. It's a different person every day. Some of you may never rung this bell. It's deceptive. You know, from my own experience, just a very small tap can be incredibly loud. So I was checking it out just then when I rang the bell. The striker doesn't need to be more than a couple of inches from the edge of the bell. It's generally better to err on the side of gentle and then increase rather than hitting it loudly. Once it's been hit, you can't retract it. Perhaps might support releasing sloth and torpor, but (laughs) easily goes into restlessness and agitation, so (laughs) gently does it. Then lastly, just about the notice board, one source of activity Some of us might have the habit to check it 50 times a day. Some of us might ignore it completely. So see if you can find more of the middle way there. If you tend to not look at it, you might want to check it at least a couple of times a day because we sometimes have things we might need to communicate with you. Okay, so we have the support of beautiful conditions again today. Please enjoy.